St. Thomas More once said that soul cannot thrive in a fast-paced life because being affected, taking things in and chewing on them requires time. It's summertime here and the midday heat has surprised us once again with its demanding intensity. If you're still hustling, take a moment with us to dream and pay attention to the life around you. We've got the perfect episode for you right now. Hey everyone, and welcome to New Way. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. My reorienting relationship to mothering and wombs, there was a real grief and loss of independence, predictability, my own body belonging to me. I was literally going through a form of wilderness where I didn't know day from night, where I was going from one cry to the next trying to figure things out, trying to adapt to this human, trying to learn from this human, trying to not project my own childhood wounds onto this being. Only when I look back on it, this was a deeply formative time and it still is for me in my own growth. But I wish we talked about it like that in our churches. Today, my interview with the Reverend Chantilly Murs Pickett, who was born on the island of Maui and now co-leads the Common Ground in New York City. She's a musician, artist, and facilitator of the Circle Way, and has some really profound things to say about indigenous spirituality and the way of Jesus. Today, in part one of our conversation, we relish the slow pace of life and the joy of being in relationship with things some of us once referred to as it. I'm talking waves, the mountains, fire, even our own guts. Let's jump right in. Chantilly Mers Pickett, thank you so much for being here for this conversation today. I'm so excited to talk with you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be with you, Sarah. I would love to begin with a little bit about the place where you grew up, which is such an amazing place in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Would you paint us a little bit of a picture of what it was like to grow up in Hawaii and maybe some of the signs and sounds and sights that you experienced as a child there? So I first want to congratulate you that you have the okina between Hawaii correct. (laughs) (laughs) The okina happens between two vowel sounds. People say Hawaii, but it's really Hawaii. So thank you. I grew up in the island of Maui, which is the second largest island in the Hawaii chain. And I grew up in a beach town called Kihei, Maui, which is on the south side of the island. In Hawaii, we talk about space and geography relative to the mountainside or the ocean side. Uh, we say um, Mauna or Makai, hmm. which if you follow the Mauna Kea protests of Native Hawaiian folks protecting the Mauna, that's mountain, and then Makai is ocean side, Kai being ocean. Hmm. So I grew up Makai side in front of this little beach called the cove where I felt like it was where I came of age is literally Mm. in the ocean Mm. and when you think of Hawaii most people think of very beach and I mean I lived a very stereotypical beach life but not everybody if you grew up in the Mauna side of the island you grew up in pastures and cattle and depending on which side of the island you grew up on. Did you have much interaction with friends or people that you went to school with who were from the Mauna side? Yes. What was that like, you guys coming together, being from such different places? It's, (laughs) 
I'm laughing because my best friend grew up in literally on the street called Paniolo Place. And Paniolo is in Hawaii, the way we talk about Hawaiian ranchers. It's cooler temperatures. It's very green, very lush, Mm. and it's higher in altitude. So it's on your drive up to Haleakala, which is our mountain, which in Hawaiian is translated to the house of the sun. Mm. So when I would stay over at their place, they were so used to 60 degree temperatures And that's freezing for where we're from, which is 75, 80 degrees consistently. And they didn't live literally on the ocean the way we did. I mean, I woke up and walked across the street and basically was in the ocean until sundown. And their existence was like, we have our garden, we farm a bit here, we have open land here. It's really beautiful in the countryside and very, very different climate. It's interesting to me because now you have, you actually live in the garden state of New Jersey now (laughs) (laughs) and work and do ministry there and around the country, but also in New New York York City City. of all places, which is strikingly different from Hawaii. Oh gosh, yes, night and day. Do you think more about the way that your spirituality has been influenced having grown up in Hawaii now that you live away from there? Yeah. So I'll talk about, I think, the formative things of growing up in Hawaii that I feel like I'm returning to now as Mm. an adult and as someone who's lived away from the islands for most of my adult life. The couple formative things I would say is that in Hawaii, we are taught from the time that we're children in school and even as I grew up in the ocean as a surfer, as a canoe paddler, I had coaches who taught us to have reverence for the ocean and reverence for land. Hmm. And they teach us a little bit of the cosmology of the islands because it's taught to you in schools. But it's this sense that indigenous people, that native Hawaiians had not only deep reverence for the land, but the land was animated. Hmm. Like the land was alive and it carried immense power And we had to respect that power. So I remember my coach, Uncle Alika, growing up in Hawaii, who used to say, never turn your back to the waters. Mm. You must always walk into the waters and you must always ask for entrance and you must honor that this water is not your home and that many creatures and many animals live here and this is their home. So we need to tread lightly, tread lightly on the coral reef, pay attention to the currents. This is more powerful than you, the undercurrents. And so we would spend time just almost as a ritual by just standing on the shore, looking out into the water before we ever entered it. And I think to myself, I do that now, even at lakes, I do that now when I go into new geography, like this sense of, can you behold that there's a power that is greater than you here at play? And you go in there with reverence and respect. Mm. And that was a formative thing for me that I never knew until now that I feel like I'm having my own different spiritual land-based awakening is that I've been so far removed from the islands, but I've never felt rooted in the lands or geography that I've been in. Pretty much until now that I'm a parent and now living in New Jersey for about 12 years living in the city, I still felt 
kind of nomadic in this odd way, in this concrete jungle, so to speak, of New York City, I still never felt quite rooted. I've never lived in New York City in particular, but have visited. I'm not sure what the counterpart would be to taking a moment and stepping into something in the midst of such a busy place. Yes. And it's not as if I could not approach the city with the same reverence or respect. There's just a particular culture and energy and pace that I realized while I can move in it and adapt to it, now that I'm outside of the city and I'm literally closer to green and land and dirt and soil and sun and trees. Oh, the place, I live by a nature preserve and there are just geese and ducks. And there's something about being closer to nature that I realize has always been in me, but I've just been away for a while and I'm kind of returning right now. I'm returning to sort of older teachings when I was a child, but this reverence and respect, I feel like I'm returning to it. And it's been a wonderful thing, particularly because I'm a parent and I'm trying to pass it on to my children. Mm -hmm. Will you tell us a little bit about your kids? Oh, yeah. I mean, this could take up the whole time (laughs) as from one parent to another. I'm coming to a place where when I think about my own spirituality and formation, that being a parent and particularly being a mom, like being a vessel that housed and formed an entire human, mm-hmm. I am coming to my relationship with spirituality and the earth and seeing the earth like a womb. Yeah. I mean, I'm a cishet female identifying woman and I've wanted so much to be as gender inclusive and to kind of resist my own feminine power because I grew up very, I mean, when I say I grew up in the ocean, I was rolling with all the boys mostly on our (laughs) surfboards and like paddling, trying to keep up, always trying to keep up with boys because I always felt like, and even in Hawaii, actually, if we can go in another whole discussion about gender and gender identity in Hawaii and indigenous culture, I just leaned on doing more masculine things as a kid. Mm Mm-hmm. And this embracing of being a mother has been such an unraveling and I feel like I've gone through my own sort of deconstruction about what it means to be a womb to two humans and to form them and to, I exclusively breastfed my daughters too. And I realized as I was both in labor and during pregnancy that I was kind of carrying on something that had been in me for so long, even from my mother's to my grandmother's who free birthed, like my grandmother gave birth on her own. Mm. And my mom was a home birther. And so I kind of carried on in that tradition. And I found that it was a very spiritually powerful thing to make humans and to birth them into the world. And I see mothering as a very deep spiritual calling. I so resonate with that. But in a sort of different trajectory for me, where Mm. although I had long intentionally used mothering language for God, because I grew up in the world, you know, in the church. My default in the back of my mind was always the he pronouns for God. I find it ironic that the creator God is so often conjured and imagined as masculine and male. Mm -hmm. Although the Judeo-Christian scriptures and so many world religions and native spiritualities evoke the image of the womb in creation and the pouring forth of life, When my children were born and very young, I resisted or was almost angry with God because I felt this tension between the sacrificed and lived experience of 
taking the time to nurture and the sac- the bodily sacrifice oh of having gosh. a child and being like, yes. why are we? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. We don't necessarily honor, equip, support people no. who are undertaking this significant thing it, because it is a somewhat common experience, not necessarily universal, of course, but an experience most of us have encountered in some way or fashion through relationship. It just seems like, well, you just do it. Yes, yes. (laughs) My reorienting relationship to mothering and wombs has not come with a bit of, I mean, you said it, the sacrifice. And for, I mean, the first early year, when I say the early years, I'm talking the 18 to 24 months when most of my child's just day to day was so dependent on me. Mm-hmm. that there was a real grief and loss of independence, predictability, my own body belonging to me. Mm-hmm. That's why it's like such deep spirituality that I look at it now because I was literally going through a form of wilderness where I didn't know day from night, where I was going from one cry to the next, trying to figure things out, trying to adapt to this human, trying to learn from this human, uh, trying to not project my own sort of childhood wounds onto this being. And while I'm in it, I didn't feel like it was spiritually formation. Only when I look back on it do I'm like, wow, Mm -hmm. this was a deeply formative time and it still is for me in my own growth. But I wish for me in terms of formation and spirituality, I wish we talked about it like that in our churches. Yes. Like I wish we honored and revered Mary even Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know in other traditions eastern traditions particularly like Mary is revered mothering and fertility goddesses and in other indigenous cultures uh, the matriarchs are honored with sacred roles and respect and I had to go through a lot of that, my own internalized resistance to gender norms. You know, I got so much resentment when my husband was going back to work as if life just happened and Mm -hmm. just continued. Yeah, we used to have fights. I'm like, I'm glad you wrote a sermon that was good. (laughs) I'm so angry because it's like, I can't even write an email. I'm such in a fog. I'm trying. And then when you have two, I'm like, I don't even know how to prepare for the next minute, the next hour. And Mm -hmm. I'm someone who prides myself in what I produce and what I do and who I am in this world. And so many things I had to deconstruct and I'm still deconstructing and why I think it's about formation because there is sacrifice. There is a reorienting. There is a releasing And the bit of denial of self, which is hard to say, but I really feel like I used to think of it as a burden. And now I look back and I think, no, it was really just a formation of how I'm seeing the spiritual role of caretaking Mm -hmm. and not as a gendered burden of women, which I'm also saying this, Mm -hmm. it's not as if I'm taking this away from the role of caretaking of male identified beings, like my husband, like or grandpa for that matter, Mm -hmm. I'm also just sort of reclaiming that my mom said that in our culture in Palau that matriarchs are really powerful because they are not only caretakers of the land, she goes, in Palau, where we're originally from, my mom and my dad, land is our wealth, Mm -hmm. land is our inheritance, land is how we live and how we continue. And she goes, and it's in the power and control of women. 
She's like, I know you have this feminist, you know, like everybody has their role and things like that. Yeah. And she knows she kind of framed it that way. She goes, but we control the wealth. Mm. And it's in that sense that it's matriarchal. Yeah. And I just was stunned by it. I was like, yeah, that's not how wealth is controlled in the U.S. or in the ways we think of how men control institutions and systems. But she says, no, women control the wealth. What we're talking about right now makes me think about something Dr. Robin Kimmer has written about in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, commitment to indigenizing Christianity. And I had never heard those two words together, which just says a lot about my (laughs) framework. But I'm wondering if you would walk us through some of that. What does that mean to indigenize and embed indigenization within the framework of Western Christianity? So the concept of indigenizing from Dr. Kimmerer came through in one of her essays. She's trying to work with her Western scientific knowledge of botany and integrate that into her Native American mythologies, cosmologies, entire worldviews with regard to land. And so for me... I've never thought about putting those two words together, to be honest. I knew what was happening as I was reading Kimmerer's book that indigenizing was surfacing and emerging. There was these stories that were coming to me. There were memories. There were these formative times when I was a child in Hawaii. It was the sense of reverence and respect and also deep mutuality. And one thing that Hawaiian folks do as well as Native Americans do, and she talks about it, is that we animate life. We animate, meaning we have relationships with the ocean, because the ocean has a spirit and the ocean has a power, and we're in relationship with ocean, and we're in relationship with mountain, and we're in relationship with wind, and we're in relationship with fire. In my own sort of Christianizing, I would say, as this is what I find in Christianity as a colonized person, is... I have found stories in Christianity that are liberating. And I'm faced with a history of Christianity that is deeply colonizing when it has been a tool of white supremacy and it has been a tool for right civilizing right the natives. It has been a tool of American expansionism and imperialism. And while I think some of my indigenous folks have, and rightly so, they have released Christianity Hmm. from their practices, from their orientation, they are returning to native cosmology, native stories, native practices. And I think that's a right and an agency that they can practice. And for me, I can't give up Jesus because I know in my own life and journey, Jesus has liberated me. And I think that's why I say, I think it's about indigenizing Christianity. I don't want to give up Jesus because Jesus, the more I learn about Jesus, he is a colonized, occupied person of the Roman Empire. And so much of his messages were pushing against the social divisions and hierarchies and oppression. And in his stories, I have found liberation. 
And in the ways, however, in which we have practiced this worship of Jesus or in the ways in which we have institutionalized the gospel is how I feel like we need to transition out of and we need a just transition, not to use the climate justice language, but I do believe that it is part of that, is that as a professional religious ordained person, I know I need the institutional church to live, to thrive, to move. And yet I know that as an indigenous person, I'm trying to figure that out and trying to do that. But I also know that I have to literally let die a lot of these constructs, a lot of these paradigms that are deeply white supremacist and patriarchal and just so harmful in its relationship to the earth. This whole sense of dominion over the earth is such a colonizing thing versus uh, we're no, we're actually part of the earth and we're in relationship and cooperation with the earth. Mm. I was going to ask you what is lost when we fail to animate or give acknowledgement that the land, the water... The fire is alive. Yeah. Kimmerer has this wonderful essay called Learning the Grammar of Animacy. Hmm. I literally have the book like on my desk always. <laughs> but she describes it this way. Uh, this is the grammar of animacy. Imagine seeing your grandmother standing at the stove in her apron and then saying of her, look, it is making soup. It has gray hair. <laughs> we might snicker at such a mistake, but we also recoil from it. In English, we never refer to a member of our family, or indeed to any person, as it. That would be a profound act of disrespect. It robs a person of selfhood and kinship, reducing a person to a mere thing. So it is that in Potawatomi and other indigenous languages, we use the same words to address the living world as we use for our family, because they are our family. Mm. And this is something that just struck me when I was reading this book, because I just started practicing the grammar of animacy in very everyday ways, talking to the trees as living beings, greeting trees, greeting my plants. You know, there's even science that says if you speak kindly to a plant, it grows. If you speak harshly to a plant, it dies. Mm hmm. Does it not speak of just the power we have in relationship to one another and in relationship to the earth? Whether or not I acknowledge the tree, I am in relationship. The tree is my neighbor. Whether or not I talk to the geese, but to refer to them and say geese friends. So my children talk to the geese like they are geese friends. They ask them what they're doing. What are you doing, geese? What are you eating? Oh, you're eating grass, you know? And children Mm -hmm. animate and personify. I mean, personify still makes it anthropocentric, meaning Mm -hmm. we put the human at the Mm -hmm. center of all Mm -hmm. (laughs) relational beings. It's like Kim said, our grammar isn't caught up with that, has it? And it's embedded in our grammar. It's Mm -hmm. embedded in the English language. It's a limitation. And we can do it in the English language when we start animating it as if they are siblings and Mm -hmm. relationships. We start talking about them in relationship to us Mm -hmm. as living beings and not as objects. Part two with Chantilly is coming your way next week. In the meantime, there's still plenty to enjoy. Maybe you'd like to practice that reverence Chantilly describes in today's conversation. Is it the sky, the waves, the wind, the grass, the tiny bird that is near to you, ready to be seen? You can also find out more about Chantilly and her work online 
at kingdomcollective.com. That's kingdom without a G and at cgnyc.church. Thank you for listening to New Way, podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. Be sure to click subscribe wherever you found this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Our growing community streams from Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, and online at newchurchnewway.org. Our producer is the fabulous Marthame Sanders. You can see stories and photos from the humans who make up this movement on Instagram at 1001NWCPCUSA. Catch you next time.